Hi everyone, and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins, and you mightn't know this about me, but I've always been a bit of a history tragic. Yep. But my mate Paul Wilson... Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Actually, mate, it's also about the cock-ups, the howlers, those moments of madness, tragic, they're sometimes funny, that have made the world what it is today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second series, second series. of Heroes and Howlers. And welcome back, Mikey. And also, to before we get into it, thanks for all the lovely feedback on the first series. Yeah, really good, guys. Really it's chuffed. Really, and I can't believe how much you're loving Paul's maps. <laughs> can't, no, can't believe it. Great to hear you. And uh, obviously, if you have got any ideas yeah. or anything you want us to cover or something that maybe you know that we don't, you yeah, know, yeah, please try get and, in touch. Yeah, get in touch with us. Try and stump us. <laughs> exactly. Right. Okay. So what are we doing today, mate? Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that, Mikey. We're going back to World War One, actually, because, folks, uh, you're very kind. You said you enjoyed how we started things off with Archduke assassination, 1914, but you also said we, <laughs> what happened at the end. Well, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I want to look a bit more detail, World War One. Obviously, in the middle, you've got that big stalemate, you know, Battle of the Somme, et cetera, et cetera. But particularly uh, at the end, um, it's always quite interesting because at school, everyone just says, oh, well, the USA arrives, it's all over, easy win. But it's not quite... That simple, isn't mate, it? Mate, also, I'm glad we're talking about the US involvement in World War One. Yeah, because it gives me a chance to talk about three of my favourite all-American heroes. Okay, of well, World War One. Uh, oh, what? So you were talking Pershing? What the, 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 the great general? Yeah, uh, yeah, very brilliant man. They, they named a missile after him. The American Expeditionary Force, whatever it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good that, man. Uh, um, organisational genius. Well, not I'm, not, I'm, not, yeah, I'm okay. not talking oh, about him. All right, okay. Uh, what about Sergeant York? Yeah, uh, what about that pa- yeah, the, the pacifist? The famous pacifist also. Cary too. Grant in the movie. Cary Grant in the movie. <laughs> in fact, for a long time, he was the most decorated soldier. Uh, received five medals of valor, or I think something along those lines. And he's your hero? No, no, no. Okay, well, uh, well World War One America's. Hemingway, yeah. Hemingway. Uh. Mate, don't get me started on Hemingway. <laughs> um, so, the guys want to have some shout out to my year nine English teacher. The old man in the sea. Old man catches marlin. Sharks take marlin. Life is hard. Don't get me started on Hemingway. <laughs> oh. And also, too, he was, he was a piss pop, which I don't mind, but he was also a, a dreadful mass murder of innocent wildlife. Like, no, that's true. Yeah, he was a bit of a. Uh, but anyway, no, 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 no. Your heroes. Go on, tell me who they are, mate. Well, it's got something to do with donuts. Donuts? Oh, good. I like donuts. Go on. Well, 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 for a start, you have to remember, we think of donuts as being as quintessentially American. That's right, yeah. But they came over with Dutch immigrants in the 19th century. Oh, right, okay. Okay, so what, but, but World War I, um, <laughs> before we get to donuts, let's do a little bit of a background. Yeah, as you said, the, it's the easy answer is that USA enters war nineteen seventeen is all over, but we don't think that's true. Well, also, um, to, it, it's also deeper than that. It quite often gets dismissed in history: the sinking of the Lusitania and, right. and America's into the war. Now, the Lusitania, Paul, is sunk in the seventh of May, nineteen fifteen. That's right. Yeah. Woodrow- Woodrow Wilson is still re-elected in 1916 on an anti-interventionist stance. In fact, his slogan was, he kept us out of the war. That's right, yeah. We've got to remember, folks, it is quite... uh I always find it a little bit ironic. You know, the USA supposed to be, you know, particularly at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, it was one of the great independent non-involvement nations, yes. which even though I think for 250 years it's only 
never been at war for nine of them. But okay, okay, okay. at the oh, yeah, time, yeah, yeah. before we go any further, you are including Korea in that—the <laughs> war that was never officially. But but I do get your point. Yeah, America has been at war for for most of its its. But in the First World War, it didn't want to get involved. You know, in fact, as you say, Wilson ran that his whole presidential campaign on not getting involved. In, in fact, he gives a famous speech in, in January nineteen seventeen where he says that he will help broker a peace between the combatants in um, in Europe, and he can do this because he's a non-combatant, sure, bro- honest broker. So even and he's st- new world, isn't he? So he's saying, you know, yeah. the new world is we're not going to get involved in those old world uh, wars and dis- arguments, disputes. We're going to try and set a new precedent. But th- obviously, there was a few reasons why he had to do that, really, wasn't there? Mike? Well, well, a lot of people often put down you know, uh, America's lack of enthusiasm for joining the First World War due to the large German-American population, yeah. and, and which is true. There was a large German-American population. Sure. But it wasn't just that particular community. Right. You've also got Irish-Americans. Sure, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, no, I, and don't forget, folks, you know, we're talking First World Wars. Easter Rising was, what, 1916? 1916, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're not going to go and start fighting for king and country. No, no, no. Irish-Americans did not want to join on the British side. You've got... Big population of Scandinavian Americans. Sure. Now uh, their idea was well, they were neutral. They didn't have a dog in the fight. Why, right. should, why should they send their sons off to off to war? And the, uh, and the Scandinavians also being in that other side, that pacifist side, don't yes. they as well? Because yeah, they say yeah, we don't we don't believe in war. And but that yeah, I was I was reading about this actually, mate. Yeah. Quite interesting. Henry Ford was a major pacifist. Ma- major pacifist. He actually set up this huge pacifist. Foundation, and these have these posters saying we did not bring up our sons to be soldiers and stuff like this. So you really have got a, a really anti-war feeling in in inside America. I will also, do there's another group that often gets overlooked mm-hmm. is um, is Russians of, of Americans of Russian descent. Sure, they've a lot of them have fled the pogroms in Russia. Yep, it's not that they're pro-German, but they are deeply anti-Czarist. Yeah, they want to see the Tsar fall. They'd be quite happy for the Tsar to fall, wouldn't they? Yeah. You know, it's the old uh, you know, my the enemy is my enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's it. See, <laughs> see, that's why. That's why you never get involved in a bar fight with Paul. He never knows what side he's on. But, <laughs> but, but you, you, okay, you're right. There were major industrial factions trying to keep people out of the war. Yeah, major cultural groups. Now, oh, there's one other point as well. I just wanted to raise about, um, and that came up um, some nice tweets we got from the folks back home about the start of the World War One as right. well, because I think it is one really important to say one of the main reasons why Germany went to war is because Kaiser Wilhelm II, yeah, he actually thought he could win. You know, oh yeah, you, you know, you got Germany since the since Bismarck, since unification, since the Second Reich has been founded. You know, the First Reich, of course, being the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. After they've got the Franco-Prussian War victory, you know, Prussia is getting this massive... In- I mean, this, this like the Prussians made it as far as Paris. They That's right. almost starved Paris to death in 1870. And the reason is, is because they've got two things going for them. They've got the military and they've got industry. You know, they, they, now, obviously, Britain uh, was the first industrial revolution, but the speed at which the Germans were catching up, both in terms of industry and in terms of armaments and things like battleships, you know, uh, that were rivals to the British dreadnoughts, mm. that kind of thing. I think it's something crazy, like 60% of Germany's GDP were going into armaments in that build-up to the First World War. So they really did think they were going to win. Well, it's never a good thing when Germany starts putting that much of GDP into armaments. <laughs> but let's look at this point in 1917. I mean, there's an argument said 
Well, Germany's on the back foot. No, no. Look, Germany. Many on many scales, Germany's winning, right? Yeah. Okay. Franz Joseph has died in 1916 November. That put a bit of a dent, but yeah. Russia's falling apart. Yeah, the Tsar's lost control. You got the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. The Ottoman Empire. Yeah, the, the, the German ally. Everyone just thought the Ottoman Empire would collapse. No, and they they're, they're actually doing pretty well. You know, um, over in the Middle East. Yeah, they're, they're holding their own um, quite nicely. And in in many ways, the only real thing that's going wrong, or is that everyone's running out of money. Um, yep. And. Also, interestingly, everyone's running out of oil. We talked about the dreadnoughts and the battleships earlier on. They're all diesel. They've all, during this period, this four-year period, very, very quickly, they've all gone from using coal uh, to, to using oil to using diesel. And, of course, the British Empire, okay, the sun never sets, but there's nowhere in the British Empire that's producing oil at that time. But and I mean- there's nowhere in the German Empire that's producing oil at that time. But America is producing but oil. But America, of course, has got lots and lots of it. So the Brits go, okay, well... They start in Persia, what will become British Petroleum. Yeah, they realise how important it is. So they're jumping onto the oil fields, but they need it. They don't need it tomorrow. They need it yesterday. And they also need the money to keep the campaigns going. So they've only got one place to turn, and they have to turn to America. And that's where my three heroes come from. I'm going to give you their names. Go on. Margaret Sheldon, Helen Purveyance, and Stella Young. Okay, so these three American ladies. Yes. Um, so, what are they? U.S. nurses or not quite? Okay, folks. So um, today's episode, we're talking about the end of World War One. We're talking about obviously those massive stalemates like the Western Front, but then. What Mikey's saying, he's got some heroes for us that in 1917, the US, the Yankees arrive. It's not quite the rest is history no, because there's still some way to go. Germany is, is, is holding its own. But you reckon 1917 uh, is, is key. Well, Paul, you, you mentioned it before, oil. Mm. And the fact that, uh, you know, Britain needs America's oil. Yeah. So at the start of, near the end of 1916, particularly the start of 1917, mm-hmm. The Germans have decided they need to cut off this oil, which means, and this sort of harks back to the echoes of the Lusitania, mm. they're going to start up unrestricted submarine warfare. Right, yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. They're just going to shoot down one another. Sink, sink, sink whatever they like, yeah. Now, they... And that has been important because they've sunk the Lusitania in 1915, but the Americans have said no. Don't do it again. still not going to get involved, but you better not do it again. And now they're saying... Now, now they're saying they're, they're going to shoot at any ship yeah. that flies an American flag. They, they need to stop all this stuff coming in to help the Allies. So the Germans think, well, what can we do to stop America coming in, you know, and fighting troops, you know, sending fighting troops to Europe? Right. And that's when one of the dumbest moves <laughs> in geopolitical history right. happens. Mate, have you heard about the Zimmerman telegram? Oh, yes. Okay, the Zimmerman telegram, 1917. Yes, yeah. go on. Okay, Arthur Zimmerman. Yes. He's the German foreign officer. He's yeah. the German foreign officer. That's right. He's back in, in Germany. He sends a telegram to Hermann von Eckhart, who's right. the German ambassador, ambassador in Mexico. In Mexico. Yes, yes. Now, yes. the idea is he basically tells Eckhart to let the Mexican government know that if America declares war on Germany for torpedoing their ships, mm. then Germany will back mm. with arms and funds Mexico mm. to retake Texas, New Mexico, and 
Arizona. Now it's yeah, and a lot of people laugh this off though. That Mikey, don't they? Yeah, they say God, this, this is never going to happen. There's no way the Mexicans do it. But yeah, I actually think Zimmerman perhaps gets a bit of a a, a bum deal here because oh yeah, yeah. Well, look, you got the, the they got the U.S. Mexican War, eighteen forty six, eighteen forty eight, right? Yeah. Which so within living memory, fifty years earlier, you got Pancho Villa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been campaigning. Yeah, he's he's keen to get over the Rio Grande again. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think this idea of using Mexico as a, as opening up a new front, if you like, to 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 keep the Americans occupied and st- stop them being able to send all their money, troop, oil, everything to help the Allies. I actually think it wasn't such a bad idea. Well, I, I would say what you're firing. Under worth a go. It was, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. And, you yeah. know, and sometimes We're, worth a yeah. go is not the greatest idea. Well, anyway, what happens is there's, the a, ru- telegram, yeah. there's a rumor going about the British intercept it and they decode it, but they actually delay releasing the fact that they know what's in the contents of this telegram. Yeah, no, it's quite interesting. We, they nearly do a massive cock up there because they say we're not going to say that we've decoded it because they're hoping that more telegrams are going to be sent with more information it will be more pertinent to the Allies in Europe rather than to the Americans. So they don't tell the Americans that they've got this um, this telegram and they don't tell them they've decoded it and they hope to get some more. But obviously, if, it doesn't last for long. No, well, in fact, it's a moot point. By March the 3rd, Zimmerman comes Events out... Events overtake them, don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know. like, well, he's trying to give Mexico a bit of a nudge. Yeah. So Zimmerman comes out and... He yeah, actually, Zimmerman actually comes out, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah and he, he actually confirms the existence of the telegram. telegram. He says, yes, we are trying to get the Mexicans in. It's a huge cock-up because that gives Wilson something to take to Congress. Yeah. And also, too, you make a point that the Germany... Well, just as one of my final sort of cock-up points. Yeah. yeah, it's like, I think Zimmerman's telegram was a cock-up. But I also think that the German decision... Um, not could, to, to try and get this second front was a smart idea, and I don't understand why on earth they didn't make overtures to Japan. You know, because they had their own little colonies in China, which they could have tempted Japan with, because Japan Japan wanted to invade China. They could have done a deal with Japan, and that would have that would have sorted out the the Russians. It would have really put the pressure on the Russians from the other side, like they did in Second World War. Oh, and also, yeah. also like the Japanese did in 1905. That's right. Yeah. You know. So yeah. Anyway, I, I just think there's been a few cock-ups by the Germans. Mexico wasn't. Quite as stupid as it sounds. Um, I, still, I still think it is, but anyway. <laughs> but there you go. All right, okay. So, your heroes. Margaret Sheldon, Helen Purveyance, Stella Young. They become the donut lassies. The donut lassies. Yes. Okay, right, yeah. And you said earlier on that they're not nurses, they are... Salvation Army. Ah, they're from, they're Army. From, they're, they're from what we in Australia call the Salvos. Yep. So when the Western Expeditionary Forces finally arrive, mm. we'll start with two women. And they were there as basically auxiliaries, mm-hmm. making cups of cocoa or lending an understanding ear to, you know, to the young men a long way from home. Yeah. And they carry these duties out yeah, with great dedication. I'm, I'm talking here about Margaret Sheldon and yeah. Helen Pavance. Right. But then at one point, one of the soldiers, well, one of them asked the soldiers what they missed the most from home. And mm-hmm. one of them said, donuts. Oh, right, yeah. And I, don't, I don't blame him. I yeah. love a donut myself. <laughs> But these these two these two women they they looked around and they thought how can we make the young men donuts, so they actually scrounged some eggs from the local farmhouse. Mm. They found some flour somewhere because mm. all they were doing was making cocoa and the occasional cake. This is a, right. They they also used wine bottles and even artillery shells, empty artillery shells, <laughs> yeah, as rolling pins. And, Always the rolling pins uh, to, and, for the yeah. And most amazingly. They picked up some old helmets, cleaned them out, turned them upside down, and used them to cook the donuts in. Oh, so the what? Well, so the, they became like the frying. Yeah, well, pots. Got, sort of like a not quite a deep fryer, but yeah, <laughs> but you can get enough. Heat. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And they were, mate, they were an instant hit. In fact, the first soldier who tasted one of these women's donuts said, if this is war, let it continue. Um, Ooh, probably, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe not quite that. Probably, must be pretty good donuts, but yeah. Probably regretted that. But, mate, it was such a hit, they made 150 donuts in the first day. Right. By the next day, that had doubled. Mm. All going swimmingly until someone said, oh, but we like our donuts with a hole in it. Oh, right. So they were just sort of making sort of... Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, yeah. Well, donuts without a hole. Donuts without a hole, yeah. Which is not, 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 nothing wrong with donuts without a hole, but, but, but uh, yeah, if you're going to do it, do it properly, right? Well, the whole thing was about giving the young boys a, a, a taste want. of home. Yeah, yeah. Helen Purviance got a local French blacksmith to fasten an empty condensed milk tin mm. with a smaller camphor ice tube Oh, right. Yeah, uh, 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 like a small little tube uh, in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Um, camphor, be... camphor ice is an, is an antifungal cream, quite frankly. <laughs> so he attached that at the top. Right. So, so they we... had a few of those lying around yeah. in the hospitals. Well, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Well, of course, yeah. No, in fact, every soldier got one because, because quite frankly, uh, yeah, yeah, foot fungus. Trench foot. Yeah, yeah, trench yeah, yeah, foot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that sits in the middle. I mean, I'm no fancy engineer. Yeah. And so they are popping. But that was out. enough to be the hole in the middle for the condensed. Yeah. yeah, okay, nice. And by that stage, it becomes. Huge. In fact, uh, Helen writes a letter home. I'm going to, I'm going to read from a letter. Mm. Well, can you think of two women cooking in one day 2,500 donuts? 2,500? Yeah, eight dozen cupcakes, 50 pies, <laughs> a bunch of pancakes, and 250 gallons of cocoa. Wow. But that's in one day. In fact, the whole donut thing goes up and down the Western Front. Right. All the Salvation Army volunteers start making... Everyone starts making donuts. They start making donuts and they become known as the Donut the Lassies. Lassies. Right, okay. And they go down... In fact, there are posters. Well, there was one woman called Stella Young. Right. Who oh, yeah, you the, said there was three. Yeah, go on. She becomes the face of the Donut Lassies. <laughs> the face of the Donut Lassies, because okay. She appeared in several propaganda posters right. extolling her work for the soldiers. And she actually gave an interview to the Daily Boston Globe. Right. She recalled one particular experience on the Mets front, which is on the Western front. Yeah, yeah, Western front, yeah. Under constant fire, she turned away from a bubbling hot donut pan, which is an upturned helmet, <laughs> yeah. to retrieve an ingredient when a piece of shrapnel tore through the tent, slammed it into the tub of boiling lard that she was making use of. And But she then says, and this is the point to remember, so many of the soldiers didn't even belong over there. They were just 16 or 17 years old. Mm, that's true. They just wanted to serve their country so badly. Now... This became so huge that, mm. um, as I said, her face became the face of the Salvation Army for right. years, reminding Americans of the job the Sallies had done. Which the, is probably why they're, they're so well-liked over there, isn't it, Mike? Because in England, we always sort of dismiss the Sally Army a little bit, you know, sort of the brass band Bible bashes and that kind of thing. But obviously in Australia and in America, in, they are taken very seriously, probably because of that war effort that they made. Well, in fact, it's best summed up in a letter that Theodore Roosevelt Jr., because oh, yeah. the son of, of the pre, of the, of the ex-president, because yeah. Roosevelt had two sons serving. In, in, in And one of them died. Yeah, one of them died. It, but the, the one it, who survived. It, it, the fighter pilot died. Or was it? Yeah. yeah. Early, very early fighter pilot. But Theodore Roosevelt Jr. wrote home to his, his father, the mm. ex-president, and he says, before the war, I felt that the Salvation Army was composed of a well-meaning lot of cranks. Yeah. Now what help I can give them mm. is theirs. Oh. And so it does actually change you know, the attitude towards the Salvation Army back at home. Yeah. Also, too, it's a major morale booster. Yeah. In fact, it becomes a National Donut national Day for donut decades day. in right. America, yeah, 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 which yeah. becomes the major fundraiser for the Salvation Army in the States. And for years afterwards, they used Miss Young's face on, 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 on the poster. Mm. 
Okay, folks, so there we go. Uh, end of World War One. The USA comes in, it brings money, it brings oil, and, of course, it brings donuts. It does bring donuts, Paul. <laughs> but you have to admit, America did change the outcome of World War One. That's right. Yeah, it's, it, it completely... There was more factors involved, I think we're right to oh, say. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. wasn't just America, um, and it, was, it wasn't obvious it was going to come in. But once they did, they changed the war... But interestingly, what you want to say, Mike, is, is that, that World War I changed the USA. Like in the very microcosm angle I can give you, I mentioned the donuts before, mm. and how World War I changed the attitude of Americans towards the Salvation Army. Mm. But also, too, you've got to remember, America wins the peace. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. It has not been bombed. It has not been damaged. Yeah. It goes from being, before the war, mm. a debtor nation mm. to the world's bank. So, so it, sees, it sees the financial shift from Europe to mm. America. And it, even inside America, you see a shift as well, don't you? Because yeah, you, you, you've got that great migration. In fact, the, 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 the great movement of African Americans from the rural south yeah. to the industrial north, that kicks off during the First World War. And it, that isn't just a, an economic movement, it's a cultural movement as well. With the jazz, the well, blues. Well, jazz yeah. and music, and, you know, and the music from the south spreads in and it changes. Well, well in fact, there's a whole part of, and this is what I want to get to, is, is how popular culture, the centre of popular culture, which had been Europe for centuries, yeah. In, the, in the Western world. For the, well, for the whole world, really. It's all been centred in Europe, and now it's centred, or it shifts. Shifts New centre to America. And you yeah. talk literature. Sure, uh, you know, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, that kind of thing. Uh, Wall Street. Wall yeah. Street takes over from London as, 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 as the base for economics. You've got you the know, Roaring Twenties, yeah, yeah, all that kind of thing. Yeah, jazz, also to country music. Yep. And, of course, the biggest one of all is the movies. I know, obviously, Charlie Chaplin, he, he's already gone to America before the start of the uh, First World War. But, yeah, he he then, in 1919, doesn't he, he creates United Artists. With, 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 with uh, Mary Pickford. And, that's right. And, and then Stan Lowell, who's also gone over, he starts making his movies and he stays in America. We have, you got Lowell and Hardy movies coming out of, out of 28. And, of course, even people like Marlena Dietrich, yeah, German yeah, yeah. Um, well, movie star. And even people, you know, not necessarily obvious ones, people like Al but Einstein, I think, because he, he goes to lecture in the USA in 21, and then he goes for good in the 30s, doesn't he? I mean, he moves over. So there's this in that massive cultural, oh, yeah. intellectual shift. And there's something else driving as well, Paul. Yeah. And this is something that often gets overlooked. Go on. Best way I can describe it is we all know that television existed before World War II. Yeah. After World War II, it becomes huge. Yeah. Well, the other great mass communication device of the 20th century mm. was radio. Sure, sure. Now, radio before World War One mm. was not really... In fact, there were small private oper operators. Yeah. But the American Congress mm. could see how important this technology was. Right. They took over or ran all the small radio outlets that mm. existed in the States. Across America, yeah. yeah. And then they poured their technology and expertise into it because right. they wanted to use radio on the battlefield. Yeah, well, that's it, because one of the people driving that um, forward technology was the military, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah, just like we, you, you can say that the internet came out of you know, the US Defence Department later on, yeah. in the First World War, it was it's, it's the radio, and it's, but it's the military who are pushing it because they need it in the trenches. Yeah, they're using microphones for the first time. Yeah, they're using these antennas. They're using electricity. Yeah, that haven't been used before, taking over from the telegram, becoming more reliable. Taking over from the homing pigeon. I mean, not completely. And also, too, you've got all these people who are now expertise in radio technology. Sure. One Every the, squad's got you know, his radio operator. They go home. And, they go home. And in fact, within a, few, boom. within a few years of the end of World War One, All over. Radio has spread through America. And that also propels the popular culture revolution. Okay, folks. Well, that's the end of the show. As Napoleon said, an army marches on his stomach. But as Homer Simpson might say, imagine if those stomachs were full of donuts. And there we have it. Season two's up and running, so don't forget anything you want to share. 
Drop us a line on all your social media using the handle at and the rest is hist. And the rest is hist. And you can find all that stuff in the show notes. Okay, and if you like the podcast, don't forget to like, subscribe and comment, you know, whichever platforms you usually use. Which brings us to next week's show and one of the epic hero versus howler title fights. That's right, Mikey, a real winner-takes-all heavyweight championship of the ancient world. And the man, I think, should have gone down as Rome's true king of the ring, Mark Antony. Against someone who you think is a bit of a dud. Bit of a lemon, yes. (laughs) Pax Romana himself, Emperor Augustus. I know, it's a big call, Mikey, but I think Augustus was a bit of a dodgepot, actually. And next week, I'll tell you why. I can't wait. (laughs) 